Turn with me to the book of Ruth, chapter number one this morning. Ruth, chapter number one. I appreciate all the good singing, the good playing. I appreciate people that will step in when it's needed. I know there's many others that would have been willing to as well, and I appreciate that. But I, I certainly do appreciate Miss Karen stepping in. That's a blessing to a pastor's heart. Ruth, chapter number one. I'm going to be preaching out of chapter number two, but these chapters are not very long. And uh, we gained some context. I was telling my Sunday school class this morning that as you study the Word of God, context is king. You say, preacher, what do you mean? I mean, uh, if you can take it out of context, you can make it mean anything you want it to mean. Uh, you take it out of context, you can make it say what you want it to say. But now if you read it in the pure context of the Word of God and try to gain God's mind on a matter, then you're going to be right. Amen? I believe we've got a lot of people today playing fast and loose with the Word of God. Don't you? There's a lot of people trying to change it, uh, sitting at revisionist tables and trying to give us something better than the pure and perfect King James Bible. They never will, amen, because you can't improve on perfection. But there's a lot of preachers trying to change it too by twisting Scripture and making it mean what they wish it to mean. I think we just ought to have God's mind on it, don't you? Ruth chapter number 1 this morning, and I'd like to begin reading at verse number 1. The Bible says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his sons, Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Chilion died also, both of them, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited His people in giving them bread. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Why will ye go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that ye may be, that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have an husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have an husband also tonight, and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them till they were grown? Would ye stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes, that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. Now I want you to notice here, this is the difference between people that are serious and people that aren't. Look what what it says, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. 
And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death, part thee and me. When she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. So they too went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass, when they were come to Bethlehem, that all the city was moved about them. And they said, Is this Naomi? And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. Now this is a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? I mean, Naomi leaves out of there, and uh, she comes back absolutely bankrupt. She has absolutely nothing. Her life is desolate and destroyed. She comes back, she says, I want you to call me Mara, which means bitterness. It means sorrow. She said, I went out full. I came home empty. I've got nothing in my life. I am absolutely ruined. But now look at this. I like this. In the first verse of chapter 2, things change. Things change because a certain person shows up in the story. And I'll tell you what will change your life, sinner. It's when a certain person shows up in the story of your life. It says, And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him, in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless thee. And said, Boaz unto his servant that was set over the reapers, Whose damsel is this? And the servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, It is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and hath continued even from the morning until now, that she tarried a little in the house. Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go after, go thou after them. Have not I charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? And when thou art athirst, go unto the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Now I've been asking myself this question lately, and I guess we all probably should. Why have I found grace in thine eyes, that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? And Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath, been, it hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother in the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore.
The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. Then she said, Let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord, for that thou hast comforted me, and for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid, though I be not like unto one of thine handmaidens. And Boaz said unto her at mealtime, Come thou hither, and eat of the bread, and dip thy morsel in the vinegar. And she sat beside the reapers, and he reached her a parched corn, and she did eat, and was sufficed, and left. And when she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and reproach her not, and let fall some of the handfuls of purpose for her, and leave them that she may glean them, and rebuke her not. So she gleaned in the field until even, and beat out that she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Thank you for your patience. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time you've given us and afforded us. I pray, God, that the Holy Spirit would have free reign and liberty in this service to speak to hearts, Lord, and to do the office work which you've appointed him to do. God, I'd ask that he'd give me the unction and power, Father, that you'd help me in the preaching. Lord, I just want to say what you'd have me to say. I don't want to shy away from anything that I should say, Lord, and I don't want to say anything I shouldn't. God, I just pray that you'd take hold this morning and do in our hearts what is is needful. Lord, if there's one amongst us that's lost, I pray that this morning would be the morning they'd come to know your Son as their Savior. Lord, that you'd encourage each of us in our own way, that you'd convict us where it's needful. Father, we love you and thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen. I know we read a lot of Scripture just a moment ago, but I believe the context provides for us uh, the question that is given in verse number 10. Let's read it once more. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes? You know, that's really the question this morning. Uh, Let me tell you something. We have an unreasonable God. And you'll hear people say all the time, well, it's all about reason, it's all about logic. Listen, if God was a reasonable God, you and I would be in hell this morning. It's beyond reason that He would send His Son to die for you and I. I'm thankful that we have an unreasonable God this morning. I'm thankful when I I should have got justice, I'm thankful that He gave me mercy. I'm thankful when I deserved hell that instead He gave me the full righteousness of Jesus Christ through His grace. I didn't deserve that this morning. And listen, if I had deserved it, it sure wouldn't have been of grace. As we read this narrative about this little Moabite widow by the name of Ruth, we find that she went in verse number uh, 2 of chapter 2, it says that she went looking for grace. She went out into the field to find grace in someone's eyes. Down in verse number 10, we find out that she had gotten grace. She had found grace. And I just want to take a few moments this morning and preach to you on the fields of grace. This isn't a normal sermon like I usually preach, but let's just walk through our text and see what the Lord will show us. You'll notice immediately in verse number one, and I already touched on this, but we are introduced number one to the person of grace. Look at it again with me. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. Now let me tell you, as you read the book of Ruth, you'll find uh, that there are a lot of uh, typological and prophetical implications in the book of Ruth. And you say, well, preacher, that's a lot of $10 words. What are you trying to say? I'm trying to say there's pictures of what God is doing and has done in this world that are found in the book of Ruth. And as you go through, there's many, many applications that you can draw and understand. Uh, But this morning, I want us to understand that Ruth pictures the poor, lost sinner. There she was in Moab. She had no hope. She had no help. 
The only help she had gotten by joining herself under these backslidden uh, Jewish believers that she had uh, married uh, one of the young men. Her life seemed to be getting better, but then all of a sudden calamity strikes and she is absolutely bankrupt. It's just her, her sister-in-law Orpah, and their mother-in-law Naomi. What are they going to do? We all kind of feel sorry for Naomi because she griped about it the most. You know what I mean? I mean, she comes back to Bethlehem and she's a sad and sorry state. And there's no question she had a lot of calamity in her life. But think about poor Ruth. You know that the lost sinner doesn't even realize what a mess they're in. They're not even aware of it. Uh, They don't even realize how dangerous they are living. I mean, uh, they are literally one missed heartbeat between them and a devil's hell. Uh, Ruth wasn't the one griping about it. Naomi was. But Naomi says, I'm done, I'm going back home. And so Ruth and Orpah, they both begin to weep and to cry, and they fall on Naomi. They say, no, Naomi, you cannot go. If you go, we're going with you. Now, here's the difference between people that it's just a profession and those that it's a possession. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, then she went back to her gods. She had a real good testimony, amen, but she went back to her gods. Now, you say, preacher, that's a lordship salvation. No, I'm just saying that God will change you when He saves you. I'm not saying you're going to have everything worked out. I'm not saying you're never going to backslide on God. I believe it's possible. I believe, in fact, it's probable. I believe, like the nation of Israel, we are bent towards backsliding. But I'm saying this, when God saves you, He'll make a change in you. We find that Orpah, she went back, but Ruth claved unto her. Ruth says, wherever you go, I'm going, Naomi. And Naomi said, I ain't told you where I'm going. She said, don't matter. Wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you die, I'll die. Your people will be my people. Your gods will be my God. And so there they go back to Bethlehem. But they're just as bankrupt in Bethlehem as they were in Moab. You know, the sinner can get in the house of God, but if he's not born again, he's still just as bankrupt as he always was. He can go to the house of bread. He can make a profession. He can uh, tout a big religious show. But if he's not met Boaz, he's still helpless and hopeless. But in verse number 1, we're introduced to the uh, kinsman redeemer. Now, I don't have time to go through the entire Old Testament law concerning the kinsman redeemer. It's certainly a beautiful thing when you consider the picture of Christ in Boaz. Let me just give you a few reasons that I think that Boaz pictures Christ. Well, for one, we find that he is the hero of this story. And listen, I'm not trying to be base and I'm not trying to be uh, simple-minded when I say this, but can I say to you that there's one hero in the Word of God, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. You won't find another perfect man because there never was another perfect man. Uh, I had uh, my brother ask me one time, he said, you know, I just don't understand why you have all these people that committed all these big sins in the Bible. And uh, he said, you know, I just don't understand why God would record that. And he said, you know, you've got David, and he committed adultery, and he murdered a man. You've got uh, Moses, and he murdered a man. And then he also uh, was uh, trying to turn back on God at times in his life. And uh, he smote the rock. Uh, Here you've got Abraham, and he lied, and he lied, and he lied. He's willing to give his family, his wife up to be out of the will of God. Why do you have all these people? And I said, well, because that book's not about them. It's not about them. It's about the person of Jesus Christ. He said, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. It's not about these poor, lost, rotten sinners. I mean, it's just the grace of God that we find a place in the book. Amen. It's by grace, not about them. It's about the Son of God. He's the hero of the story. But I would say also because of the hometown that he came from. We'll find later on that Boaz had come from Bethlehem, Judah. 
You might have noticed early on in the story that it says of Elimelech and his family that they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. Now, you might remember that, Brother Ralph, because there's a prophecy given in the Old Testament concerning the birthplace of Christ where it speaks of Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Thou art not the least among the princes of Judah. Uh, The reason for that is there's two Bethlehems in Israel. And it was the Bethlehem Judah that our Lord and Savior uh, was laid in a manger at, was birthed into this world, incarnated into this world. That's where the Son of God made His entrance into this human existence. Boaz came from there. But I would say it's not just because of that. I, I would give you another thought. I could give you a thousand. But let me say because of the name that he has, Boaz. You know what it means? It means inner strength, fleetness, inner strength. Strength. It speaks of him who has the ability. The Bible calls him a mighty man of wealth. It speaks of him who has the intrinsic and self-sufficient strength. We might say of Boaz that he was a self-made man. You know what that is? That's someone that says, I don't have to depend on anybody. Pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I do things my way. I'm not looking to anyone else to fix it for me. But do you know, friend, that we can talk that talk all we want, but you and I, we can't be that way. I don't care who you are, you're going to need somebody at some point. I mean, we can all talk it up and play it up. I'm somebody, I don't need nobody's help. You just wait until the doctor gives you a bad report. You'll need somebody's help. You'll need somebody's help. There's only one that's never needed anyone's help. And that's the Immaculate Son of God. You see, grace is really about a person. I was talking to my Sunday school class this morning about this thought. We have have tried to equate Or make synonymous the principles with the person. And there's a real danger in that. Do you know why that is, Brother Ralph? I'm not saying that the principles or the commandments, the truths of the Word of God, the ways in which God expects us to live, I'm not saying those aren't important. But when we make synonymous the person and the principles, listen carefully, we make people believe they can know salvation by keeping commandments. It's not about that. Uh, What's the motivation for our keeping of uh, God's Word if you love me? Keep my commandments. It's not just about having a list of rules that we follow. That's foolish. We couldn't keep them. God did that. That's the Old Testament law. He said, you want to know what my standard of righteousness is? Here it is. Keep it. And not a single person ever did keep it except for the Son of God. No man ever could. No man ever could keep God's standard of perfection. But then, hallelujah, God sent a Boaz. God sent a kinsman redeemer. God sent one that needed no man to vindicate his righteousness. God sent one that needed no man to die for him, but could die for the entire world and then raise up again to save in power and in glory. God sent us the person of grace in the person of Jesus Christ. If you don't know this person, you don't know salvation. The Bible says that if you don't have the Son, you don't have life. It's that simple. There's a lot of people have this this question, you know. How can I know? How can I know? How can I know? And I'm not trying to make it overly simplistic. I mean, listen, I know people struggle with their salvation. I've struggled with it at times in my life. So please don't think I'm trying to be ugly. But let me explain it to you as simply as I know how. If you were to ask me how I know that I'm married, wouldn't that be a silly question? I wear this ring on my hand. And I'm fat, so I'm going to keep wearing it on there. (laughs) I wear this ring on my hand. This ring does not make me married. It tells people I'm married. I take the ring off, I'm still married. 
The outward expression does not, does not change anything inwardly. It is just that, an outward expression of an inward experience of something that took place. And you might look at me and you might say, well, how do you know that you're married? Well, I know that I'm married because I know my wife. I spoke to her this morning. She almost spoke to me. <laughs> I know her. You say, preacher, what, what would happen if you couldn't remember your anniversary? Well, aside from a, from a very tragic and well-attended funeral, um, it wouldn't change the fact that I'm married. Now, listen carefully. I know when I was married, September 19th, 2009. I know. I know when I was married. I remember it. I was there. There was a time. I haven't always been married, you understand. But it's not that date that makes me married. That was the day that I married her. And I know that. And I know there's that time. And I know there's that place. But it's the relationship that I have with her day in and day out that reminds me ever before my mind's eye, I'm a married man. There's a love betwixt us. There's a family betwixt us. We love each other. We have a relationship. Now, let me ask you something. You may have a day, you may have a wedding day, quote unquote, when you knelt and supposedly got saved, but do you have a relationship? Now, I'm not trying to discount uh, you knowing when and where. That's wonderful. God bless you. I mean, I, that, that's great. You should. I, I believe that, that we should know uh, of a moment. We don't have to know the date. We don't even have to know the place. We don't have to know what the man was preaching. We don't need to know any of that. We do need to know that there's been a time we've accepted Christ. But listen to me. Are you trusting that or are you trusting in the relationship that you have with Jesus Christ? I'm saying this is about a person. It's not about a set of principles. This is about Boaz, the person of grace, But we read in verse number 2, immediately after, and it's interesting to me, immediately after we're introduced to Boaz, we find that Ruth went out looking for grace. You see, there could be no grace if there had been no Boaz. There would have been no fields if there was no Boaz, Brother Ralph. There would have been no corn if there had been no Boaz. It's all due to the existence of Boaz. But now that she knows there is a Boaz... She tells Naomi, I'm going to glean if that I may find grace. There's a pursuit taking place. Now, we could have a bit of a chicken and egg discussion about which comes first, grace or faith. And I would say this, that grace is one of God's qualities that He expressed through Calvary. Grace, in a sense, has always existed. But without faith, we have no access to this grace. And so we find that Ruth was looking for something. Let me tell you something. There's a lot of people in this world that are looking. Uh, Brother Kerry mentioned it on Wednesday, and, and it, it, it just jumped out at me when he said it. He said, you know, the reason, the reason that the horoscopes are in the paper, the reason that the self-help books are on the shelf, the reason that the psychiatrists are in business, the reason that these things exist is because we have a world that's looking. And we do. I understand it's not like it used to be. We can attribute it to whatever we want to attribute it to, or we can be super spiritual and just say it's our fault. But there's no question that there was a time, and there have been times in our nation's history and in this world's history, when revivals seem to sweep through in a miraculous way. But let me tell you something. We can make all the excuses in the world that we want. We've not run out of sinners to reach with the gospel yet. We've not run out of people that are looking. It's we've stopped looking. Because there's still people going out into the field looking for grace today. Maybe you're here today and you've come to Bethlehem. You've come to the house of bread because you're looking for grace this morning. 
Could I say that walking through those double doors won't get you grace? Could I say being at an altar won't get you grace? Putting money in a plate won't get you grace? But friend, let me tell you, we have the promise of the presence of a Boaz that will speak to your heart and give you grace this morning if you're looking. She would have never met Boaz if she hadn't been looking. Someone had to tell her there was a field. Someone had to tell her there was a Boaz. Someone had to tell her that there was grace to be found. You say, who did that? Well, I reckon she probably saw the reapers reaping. You hear me this morning? She probably saw the reapers reaping. And said, hey, there's a place to find grace. I think part of the reason we're not seeing people saved is the reapers have quit reaping. They see a dead Christianity. It's no wonder they're sickened by it. (laughs) I'm sickened by it. Our children are sickened by it. A lost world is sickened by dead Christianity. Let me tell you something. Uh, Revelation chapter number 3. Christ said, I'll spear you out. God's sickened by a dead Christianity. It's time this world starts seeing the reapers out reaping again. She was looking. We see the pursuit of grace. But where did she go? We see there was a place of grace, Brother Ralph. Went into the field. If you study the Word of God, you'll find that the field, time and time again, is a picture of the world. Now, how unusual. I mean, we would, we would imagine that grace could be found at the throne of grace. And hallelujah that it is, Brother Ralph. I mean, I'm thankful we can come boldly under the throne of grace. And we would kind of, you know, assume that grace could maybe be found in certain religious circles. I mean, that's, that's God's A-team, right? I mean, that's who He's dealing with. But that's not where Ruth found grace. Ruth found grace out in the field, out in the world. Do you know why that is? Because that's the very nature of grace this morning. Grace comes to you where you're at. Grace doesn't expect you to come up to its level. You see, there is grace in this world. And I'm trying to say to you this morning, God's still able to save. That's what I'm getting at, Brother Al. I mean, I don't know how else to say it, but just to say that there's still grace in this world. As wicked and as rotten as this world is, you say, oh, I ain't so bad. Turn on the news. Turn on the news. It's sickening how this world is. But let me tell you something. There's just as much grace in this world as there's always been in this world. The saving gospel of Jesus Christ is just as powerful as it ever has been. And God is still able to work in hearts and in lives. You may be here today thinking, it's just too late for me. I've gone too far. I'm too bad. I can't do it. Let me tell you something. You're no hell and no more helpless and hopeless than this poor Moabite widow. She is depending on a broke-down, backslidden, and discouraged Jew to try to find some kind of salvation. She was in a sorry state. But in the midst of her situation, she found grace. You know why she found it? She found it because she's looking for it. She's willing. And the problem is, listen, there's a, the problem with a lot of us is that our barns are empty, but we won't admit it. We're bankrupt, we're dissatisfied, we're unhappy. And listen, I'm not talking just to sinners, I'm talking to Christians this morning. We need a touch of the grace of God in our life. But we don't want to admit it because we're too spiritual. And we're about to spiritual ourselves into a dead relationship with Jesus Christ. We've got to recognize that there's a need in our life. Let me tell you something, I don't care where you're at. I'm telling you that there's grace there. There's grace there.
We see a place of grace. I want to show you one other thing. I don't mean just one more thing. Don't get excited. <laughs> Look down at verse number 5. This blessed me. <clears throat> then said Boaz unto his servant that was set over the reapers, whose damsel is this? Notice what he asked. He didn't ask who she, uh, who she is. He asked whose she was. That's really a question this morning. It's not who you are, it's who you belong to. It doesn't matter who you are. Whose damsel is she? Who does she belong to? And the servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, It is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and hath continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. Now, I just want to read three words into the next verse, and I'm going to explain why. Then said Boaz. I want you to notice the perception of grace. I've gotten into a bind before in times in my life. Let me ask you something. Have you ever been reckless with making acquaintanceships? And looked back and regretted it later. You ever become friends with somebody? And I, you know, in ministry, uh, you meet a lot of people, you get to know a lot of people. And there's a lot of people that you become friends with. You know, everybody knows how to talk the talk. And then I, I hate to say it, it's sad to say, but there's times that then later you find out something about that person. And you say to yourself, why did I ever yoke myself up to them? See, that's how you and me work. If I had been Boaz, or if you had been Boaz, there would have been no then said Boaz unto Ruth. You see, if it had been you, or if it had been me, this is how the conversation would have went. Whose damsel is this? Who is this person out in my field? And the reapers would have looked, and they would have said, Well, sir, that's the little uh, widow from Moab that came up with Naomi. And she's been here all day, and she's been gleaning and reaping, and she's been out here the whole time, except she went in the house for a few moments, but she's been here the whole time. That's who this is. And you know what you and I would have done? We would have said, oh, nobody important. And we would have walked on. Nobody significant. Nobody with anything to offer. Nobody that can do anything for me. Just a little widow from Moab. That's how you and I would have operated. That's not how Christ operates. <laughs> what I'm trying to say to you is this. God knew who and what you were before He ever died for you. That's the perception of grace. There's no buyer's remorse from Calvary this morning. We sometimes tend to think that one of these days, God is going to get put out with us. I feel like that sometimes. And it's because if I was God, I would have been put out with me by now. But then I just have to remember, friend, God's not only seen what I have done, God's seen what I will do. God's seen not just what I do, but God's seen what I'm capable of. I'm saying that God saw the blackest part of your soul from Calvary's tree, and still He cried out, and still He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Christ did not go into 
Calvary with the wool over his eyes, but he came in knowing that this was the time, this was the hour, this was what he came for. He said, this is why I came into the world for this hour. Shall I not pray and say, God, save me, forgive me, uh, keep me from this hour? No, he uh, set his face as a flint towards Jerusalem. He knew what you were. There's nothing you need. To, there's nothing you need to worry. Aren't we silly when it comes time to do business with God? We don't want to show Him our whole hand. But friend, He already knows what's going on in our life. You say God couldn't love me. God's loved a lot worse than you. God's loved a lot worse than me. And and if I was the worst that God had ever loved, that's still pretty bad, friend. Because God knows what goes on in the deepest, darkest recesses of this blackened heart of mine. God knows what goes on in our thoughts. God knows who and what you are. There is a perception to grace, but it does not, it does not derail grace. Because it's just that, it's grace. See, if it was by works, it might, it might throw a hiccup in the whole thing, Brother Ralph. But if it's by grace, it doesn't matter who and what we are. It is by very nature. If it's of grace, it is no more of works. If it is of works, it is then no more of grace. There can be no mixture of the two. It's one or the other. You say, I don't believe that this morning. Well, you better start believing it. Because you're not good enough to work your way to heaven any more than I am. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Their mouth is as an open sepulcher. That's you and me. All we like sheep have gone astray. Gone everyone to his own way. Every single one of us. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. God knew what he was getting into with Calvary. I said it this morning. It's love. God commendeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't commend his great bargaining quality. God didn't commend his, his great ability to get a good deal in saving souls. God commendeth His love. He did it out of love. He didn't do it because you love Him, because you didn't love Him. He did it because He loves you. And He knew exactly and still knows exactly who and what you are. We see the perception of grace. I want you to notice again with me. We see not only the person of grace and the pursuit of grace and the place of grace and the perception of grace, but look at verse number 8. I like this. Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not my daughter? Something's changed, you see. When he speaks to her, he calls her daughter. And I'm not going to try to over-spiritualize this and try to make it mean something that it doesn't, but I do think it's interesting to note that when he asks about her, he says, whose damsel is this? And in verse number 8, he looks at her and he calls her my daughter. There's been a change that's taken place in her life. That change did not come later on. That change did not come when she laid at his feet. That change did not come whenever there was a supper. That change came whenever he approached her and she came to him. He says, My daughter, go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maiden. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after him. Have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? And when thou art athirst, go unto the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. 
Now, I could sit here and I could preach an entire message to you on the local church there. And it's found there. What do you think it means uh, when it says, don't go to another field? In other words, don't get out in the world. Don't eat at another table. In other words, don't go to some other place for your doctrine. And when it says to drink of the water that the young men have drawn. Who are the young men? They're the reapers. It's saying they ought to be discipled into a church. Because God still approves of the church. Amen? Uh, God's means of discipling believers and reaching people is still the local church this morning. It's still important. But let me just say... I'm not going to preach that, Miss Kim. <laughs> but let me just say that we see the provision of grace. She came with a need. And we find that her need is met. There was no need to go to another field. Do you know why? Because the field she was in was sufficient. There was no reason to go draw from another well. Because <laughs> the well she was drinking from was sufficient. I saw somebody put on Facebook the other day, like he said, I'm still drinking this new year. I'm just drinking from a different well. Amen. What I'm saying is this. Grace satisfies. Grace is enough. You can go to a lot of different fields and you'll not find what you'll find in Boaz's field. You can go to a lot of different tables and you'll not find what you'll find at Christ's table. You can go to a lot of fountains and you'll not find what you'll find at the fountain of living waters, the indwelling Spirit of God. I'm trying to say this, the looking is over. And I'm saying this to believers as well. Listen, the looking is over. You can go to a thousand different places to try to find your fix and your answer. And I'm not saying God doesn't provide some helps and some friends and some means. But I'm saying this, at the end of the day, God's given you a help, and God's given you a place. And there's a lot of problems we're trying to get everybody to fix. And they never will, and they never can, because only God can fix a soul problem. Only God can fix a soul problem. And if what you've got is a soul problem, then only God can fix a soul problem. Her problem was she had no grain. She had no corn. She had nothing. She was bankrupt. But now this has changed her life because there is a provision that's been made. That provision was already there. But until she knew the person, she didn't have access to it. It was always there. The grace of God is nothing new. Say, what did Calvary do? Calvary introduced us to Boaz. That's what Calvary did. God's always had grace. Hey, Noah found grace. But Calvary was when Boaz walked onto the field and said, Go not hence to another field. Stay here. This is salvation. This is strength. This is satisfaction to your soul. We see that there is a provision for grace. I want you to notice the next thing with me. Guess what letter it starts with? (laughs) Look at verse number 10. The Bible says, Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. As I was preparing for this sermon, as I was studying, one of the first things that I'll do when God's given me a, a text or a body of Scripture, uh, given me peace about it, is I'll take and I'll begin to divide it. Because I want to understand what it means, you understand. I don't want it to say what I think it ought to. I want to divide it in such a way, rightly dividing the word of truth. And as I was 
studying this passage, verse number 10, I had, I had partitioned it with the previous two verses, verse 8 and 9. But then as I began to study, I realized that this interaction between Ruth and Boaz is important because her question was not rhetorical, you understand. She was not asking this just to be asking a question. She was literally asking Boaz, Boaz, what have I done that I would find grace in thine eyes? Why would you look upon me? And I want you to notice the peace that we have with grace. Let me ask you something. Why is it that God saves us? What is the basis of our salvation? Look what he says to her. And Boaz answered and said unto her, notice what it first says, It hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother in the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore. The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel. Now, I want you to notice this. Under whose wings thou art come to trust. Then she said, Let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord, for thou hast comforted me, and for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid, though I be not like unto one of thine handmaids. Now notice what she's saying. She first asks him a question. Boaz, why have I found grace in thine sight? He gives her an answer. And then she acknowledges what was really the source of her question. Verse number 13, she says, Though I be not like unto one of thine handmaidens. You know what she was saying? <clears throat> she was looking at Boaz and she was saying, Boaz, you know, I just can't wrap my mind around why you'd look upon me and take knowledge of me, because I'm not like one of your handmaids. I'm not like these other people. There is nothing profitable within me. There is nothing within me that is desirable. I am a widow. I am what most people would deem to be a cursed woman. Boaz, what is it about me that you take interest in? He says three things. Notice first, that he acknowledges his knowledge of her. He says, it hath been showed me. So he starts off by saying, first off, Ruth, I want you to understand that I know everything there is to know about you. The wool's not over my eyes. There's been full disclosure. I know exactly who you are. It hath been showed me. Number two, I want you to notice that he speaks of her seeking. He says, I know what you've done to your mother-in-law. Now, what's he saying? What had she done to her mother? She had followed her mother-in-law. She had recognized that where she was at was nothing. And that she needed something. And when God gave light into her life through Naomi, no matter how murky it seemed, no matter how dim, no matter how many times the flame on that candle flickered and seemed to go out, there was life that was presented to her. There was a way God was dealing. There was a message that was given. There's a house of bread. There's a place of salvation. And Ruth said, I will go and I will seek. And notice, (laughs) I like this, speaks of her faith. You know, that's really what it comes down to. When we come to the place as a sinner that we realize that God already knows everything about us, 
and that we are who we really are, that we're not who people think we are, that, that God's opinion of us is what really matters, when we understand that it hath been showed Him, and when we're willing to respond to that measure of light that God brings into our life through the Word of God, through the preached Word of God, through the singing, through a gospel, through whatever it is, God makes us aware of our need of salvation. And then, as a response to that, when we're willing to put our faith, He said, the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust, that's when salvation happens. When we turn from ourselves and turn to the Savior, when we put our faith, in the finished work of Calvary. That's the reason for grace. The reason for grace is nothing you've earned. It's nothing you've done. It's just you receiving the free gift of Calvary. That's all it is. I want to give you a final thought. Now you're wondering if I mean that. <laughs> no, I mean it. Look at verse number 14. The Bible says, And Boaz said unto her at mealtime, Stop for a moment and let that soak in. At mealtime. How do you know when it's mealtime? I don't know. I'm telling on my parents when I say this, but around our house there was no mealtime. You know what mealtime was? Mom! What's there to eat? I'm dying! That was mealtime around our house. And Dad would say, there's baloney. I'd say... I don't want no baloney. He'd say, you ain't that hungry then, are you? <laughs> that was when it was mealtime. You know, what, you know what Boaz is saying to Ruth? Boaz is saying, when you get hungry again, when you need something, when a need enters into your life at mealtime, Ruth, it says, come thou hither and eat of the bread and dip thy morsel in the vinegar. And she sat beside the reapers, and he reached her parched corn. You can tell God's a southerner. Amen? And he reached her parched corn. It's not saying he reached her parched corn. It's saying he reached her parched corn. Amen? Look what it says. And he reached her parched corn, and she did eat, and was sufficed, and left. And when she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and reproach her not. And let fall some of the handfuls of purpose for her. Leave them that she may glean them and rebuke her not. So she gleaned in the field until even and beat out that she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. Let me say a quick word about the promise of grace. Do you know what Boaz is saying to her? Boaz is saying, Ruth, there's always a place at my table and in my field for you. There's always a place. And do you know that's the blessed, the blessed thought about a believer? I don't care how backslidden you are. Do you know there's still a place at his table and in his field for you? You may have messed up. You may have used to serve God at one time and you're not serving him like you used to. Could I say there's still a place in his field for you to serve? You may be absolutely spiritually bankrupt right now. You may have absolutely nothing except your salvation, your name. You say, preacher, are you talking down salvation? No, I'm, I'm simply being honest. There's some people get so backslidden on God that the Bible says they can forget that they were washed from their old sin. You can get to the place, friend, in your spiritual walk uh, where uh, the only thing you've got is your salvation. Where you're not serving God, you're not doing anything for Him, you're miserable. You don't even want to go on in the Christian walk. You hate church, you hate Christians. 
Say, no, preacher, yeah, friend, I've seen it. Could I say there's still a place at Boaz's table for you to get the help you need? There's still grace for you. There's still a place for you to get encouragement. There's still a place for you to get strength and sufficiency. This walk of grace is not something that stops the day we get saved. It starts the day we get saved. Whenever Paul had a thorn in the flesh, he prayed, he asked God to take it away. God said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. It's just as sufficient today as it's always been. It was sufficient for Paul with his thorn. It was sufficient for Paul when he was in prison. It was sufficient for Paul in the midst of a shipwreck. It was sufficient for Paul uh, when he was facing a chopping block. It's sufficient today for you. You may be going through things no one knows about. In fact, you probably are. I've often said that a person's deepest heartaches nobody knows about. People hurting with things that they'd never tell you about. You know why? You're too good of a Christian, you'd be judgmental. (laughs) You know? They're hurting. You don't know about it, and I don't know about it. But let me tell you something. There's a Boaz that hath been showed unto. There's a Boaz that knows what your need is. There's a Savior that it hath been showed unto. And he says, there's enough at my table. There's enough at my table to meet your need. There's enough at my table to give you peace. There's enough at my table to give you strength. Hey, if you're lost and undone, there's enough at my table to save you. See, what it really comes down to is this. Are we really willing to come to Boaz? With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed. The altar is open right now. If God's spoken to your heart, you don't have to wait till the first note is played. If you're a Christian, you need strength from the Lord, I want you to come. If you're lost without Christ and you need someone to pray with you, I want you to come. If you've got loved ones that are in this same situation that I preached about today and you're burdened for them, I want, them to, I want you to come. And I want you to pray. I just want you to find a place at this altar. And I want you to deal with the Lord.